Hello, and welcome to the first in an exciting new series of Revision Companion podcasts uh, to help and support your study of Macbeth. Today, you are joining myself, Ted. I'm Emily. I'm Alex. Excellent, full house. So, uh, to start us off with Macbeth today, we're going to be looking at the context of the play. So, Al, shed light on what we have in store for us. Thanks, Ted. Um, I'm just going to talk through the kind of the situation, the political situation, the historical situation within which Macbeth was written. Um, so his thoughts have first been performed in 1606. So it's what you'd say the early Jacobean era. Um, and when you hear that term Jacobean, all that means is that the king at the time, the king of England, um, was James I. Um, and it's important to recognise that time as a period of significant political change. Um, James was the nephew of Elizabeth I, who was the, who was the queen before him, um, and, and she was the last Tudor monarch. And she brought England out of a particularly turbulent century, um, but had not left an heir. So he came to the throne in a very quite a vulnerable position. Um, and the, the fact, I think it's just important to kind of recognise the century which had happened before, before we look at the situation that James found himself in. Um, Elizabeth's predecessor was uh, Bloody Mary. Um, their father was Henry VIII, and he was famously oversaw the break with Rome, um, the end of the formal, legal and spiritual link with Rome and the Catholic Church. Um, and I think it's just important to kind of recognise when, when we talk about monarchs, they have a problem in terms of living up to great predecessors, as well as imposing their own will and their own self, and history is their judge. Um, and Elizabeth is said to have had the shadow of a father who was like a domineering, physically imposing, a tyrannical figure, able to disrupt you know, centuries of tradition and precedent in the pursuit of his, his personal, his personal, his political aims. Um, and she was kind of came to the throne, not only kind of with the expectations of the time, the, the culture of the time as a woman seen as somebody who wasn't worthy of that throne, um, but, but also surrounded with people who were, who basically didn't think she was up to the job. Um, and then she was also in this, this period with hostile, um, she was surrounded um, by hostile countries and was at war for much of her reign. So James's challenge was different in that he, he'd been king of Scotland his whole life before. So he, I think he, he came to the, 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 the throne in Scotland at, when he was a baby. Um, so he was 37 by the time he got to the, the, the English throne. Um, so already an established ruler, um, but he was essentially a foreigner um, in control of a nation still at risk of coups. You know, there was a lot. Mm-hmm. England was targeted. It was it was a place that um, the rest of the continent, almost the rest of the, the rest of almost the whole continent, had kind of um, cut off and was looking to um, impose. Well, looking to install someone who was you know back, bring it back into the fold in terms of become a Catholic country once again. Um, and as a result, you know, in the first year, he he survived two two plots, two coups to to um to take him out and, and, and replace him, and then famously a few years later, um, the gunpowder plot, sixteen oh five, which Ted, you I think you're going to talk yeah. about in more detail later. Um, so it was a political environment that Macbeth. That was the political environment um, that Macbeth was written in, and Shakespeare, you know, at this stage of his career, he was experienced. He was already successful, um, and he counted James I as one of his patrons. Who so is a very famous playwright. Um, but the play itself is about personal and political ambition, and in this case, of the title character of Macbeth. Um, it explores driving forces, it explores his relationship to his wife, um, the influence of the supernatural on the individual and on politics, and it's a play which is about agency and free will. Um, but I just think it's really important to recognise just how politically sensitive this topic was. It's important to remember that when that Shakespeare wrote this play with James I in mind, um, and that possibly dictated a lot of the events, 
um, but also asked, kind of prompted him to ask some important questions of society, of James I and, and his rule. Um, and as we go forward, that's um, something we're going to explore through the, through the central themes. So just, just on that, I remember once, Sal, you came back from uh, like a CPD teacher training session and you spoke about the idea that uh, Shakespeare was like a media mogul and that understood, that helped us to understand him. Yeah. So the idea that kind of, um, when we think about context, it's not so much like, you know, something we're going to be talking a lot about today is not bolting on your context and not making a point and then saying, and also audiences were afraid of witches and also yeah. King James I uh, thought this or thought that, mm. but kind of, you know, suffusing it in a meaningful way in little bits and parts throughout your answer. And I think with, with the idea of Shakespeare, it's just important to recognise that he's, the, he's ultimately a businessman. Yeah. Yeah. And he is creating plays that need to be popular with the public, mm-hmm. that need to not challenge the conventions of the time, that yeah. need to not challenge the establishment, and that need to kind of fit in, that need to, one, be popular, but also be acceptable. Yeah. And I think that when we talk about all these events and all these influences, it's in the same way that if you know, the Marvel Studios are making a superhero film, they need to kind of create a story that's interesting but also play within the rules of yeah. what we Absolutely. think a story well, tap, is taps into that common interest of society yeah. we were saying just before we started podcasting today that I always really try and get students to see the title character Macbeth and his antagonist Lady Macbeth as people okay so not just characters as constructions but as people uh, fighting against each other in a relationship trying to grapple with moral conscience or the role of one ambition clashing with another ambition or morality potentially clashing with the norms of society. Um, So I think today, the purpose of today's podcast is kind of to unpick the parts of the contextual understanding that we think we need to apply to the the play, but really the elements of context which really are necessary in order to understand these characters and the way they act and the way they react and actually ultimately how Shakespeare ensures his characters, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, both suffer a demise throughout the play and a necessary demise and we'll come on to the fact that this demise that they suffer is necessary due to the varying aspects of context that, that underpin the play absolutely so uh we're just gonna go on now to talk about the the great chain of being which uh these guys laugh at me usually because i usually say the great being of chain or something wrong but i've said it right in that instance <laughs> so the the great chain of being it's a really really interesting idea and what I'm going to look at the great chain of being and the divine right of kings now. And what I'm just going to try and do is, is kind of place the life of Shakespeare and place the kind of the setting of this play within the, the philosophies and, and ideas and life that were existing at that time. So the great chain of being is something that kind of on the face of it seems is, is quite a simple idea, but it also you can underestimate how much it shapes and influences the way everything from family dynamics to personal relationships were understood. So, on a basic level, it's this idea that you have God at the very top and you have every element of being in life ranked from kind of the most important and the perfect to kind of the lowest being. So you have God at the very top of this great chain of being and you have earth and kind of like just actual dirt at the very bottom. Mm. And then you kind of have humans in the middle because we're both spiritual, part of the spiritual world, but also we're part of the physical world as well. And this was something that was kind of you know popularized by the Catholic Church in kind of during the medieval period as a way to explain the kind of the, the way society had fallen. Just whilst you're saying that, I think it's important to remember we've talked about the time the play was written, mm. i.e. Jacobean England, but it's important to remember it was set in medieval Scotland. Yeah. So when we're talking about the sort of uh, rules which defined medieval society, this is where that comes yeah, in. absolutely. So, you know, and it's... We need to kind of almost look at the kind of the history of the Catholic Church here. So in, let's say, medieval Britain, you've got the Catholic Church, which is enormously powerful. And 
nearly everyone in the country is religious in some way or another. And they go to mass and they go to monasteries and they celebrate these things. But these things, they're taught. Mass is done in Latin. So the only source of information, education, and knowledge in the country is from the church. And it's written in a book that you can't speak the language of. So sometimes it can be quite easy to look at the great chain of being and like, well, why would they accept that God was perfect? And why would they yeah. accept the idea that King was a representative of God? Why would they question that? But the only things that have been learned and taught have been through the church. And so the great chain of being basically explains why the world is the way it is, explains why you're in the position you are in society yeah. and how that that is a manifestation of God's will and how the King is more important than you because the King is closer to perfection because the king is closer to kind of that, that godlike ideal. Yeah. And that you, as someone who's further away and less perfect, that's why you are where you are in society. And, you know, that leads us on to kind of, you know, when we look at Inspector Coles, we talk about religion being the opium of the masses. Like this was this means of controlling for the king. Yeah. It's a great way that, well, society is the way it should be. So to challenge that is to go against God. But what's really fascinating about this great chain of being, it's not just like the big picture stuff in terms of there's God and then there's kind of priests and lords and there's kind of peasants at the bottom. It even influenced family dynamics. So, you know, it was in such detail that we talk about how, you know, the, the man of the household was at the very top and then the, the relationships between brothers and sisters. It went to the detail where uh, fish were below uh, birds in the pecking order. Yeah. It was like, just, it looked at like uh, elements and rocks and types of jewels and which was closer to God and which was... Mm. Um, close to all of this and you know part of this is influenced by kind of ancient philosophies by Aristotle and his categorization and Plato and his belief that there was like a perfect ideal but I think part of it you can see the Catholic Church trying to an early attempt at almost science explaining the way the world is through their religious values and people just accepted this this was the norm and that explained the dynamics and the nature of science there was the no alternative hundred percent. It was the only. It was like I said. That was the only source of knowledge, the only source of understanding the world, and then that kind of leads us on to the divine right of kings. Now, this is really interesting for understanding King James the First's mindset and and the, the context of the period as well. So, obviously, you know, Al's talked about this idea of our um, of King James ascending at a time of great turmoil. So, King James the First is a really, really scholarly king. He's someone who's incredibly well-read, someone who's a prolific writer, someone who has a lot of interest in it. Is is very... Obviously, kings and queens were very political, and Elizabeth I kind of led the way in that, as did Henry VIII, but King James I is a great scholar and is, you know, writes a lot on the subject. So when he was king of Scotland, he wrote a book called the... I'm going to say this wrong, but the Basilican Doran. And that was for his son, Henry, who was kind of like this like famed young boy. He was kind of the perfect future king before a tragedy struck him. And he was kind of grooming him to become the perfect king. He was guiding him on this idea of kingship and what it is to be a good king. And he talks about how this idea that to be a king is a burden from God, receiving a burden of government. So this idea that as a king, you've been given a duty by God. And it's your duty to kind of carry out this burden and to protect the people. So he really did believe that he was on a mission from God as king. And he raised his son to believe that as well. Now, when he ascended to the, um, the, the throne of both England and Scotland, he spoke further in this idea of kingship and this idea of like the divine right of kings. And it's important to remember that at this time, England was no longer a Catholic country. And in all the other countries that had Catholic kings, the very simple reason was who's the representative of God on earth? The Pope. If the Pope supports your king, then the king has natural authority because the Pope's chosen him. Yeah. But the Pope can easily say that King James I should not be king. 
So he has to, in his own scholarly way, justify why he should be king, even without the Pope's explicit approval. And his idea is that this idea of the state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon earth. So this idea that because of this tradition of monarchy, that it is God's will acting upon earth and that he is the representative of God. Even ignore, it's not just the the Pope who has authority and is chosen by God, but kings as well. And he doesn't need the approval of the Pope or anyone else. Mm. Just being a king and being part of that tradition gives him that authority. And as he ascends to the throne and he's pushing this idea of the divine right of kings, there's a certain expectation upon him with his mother having been a Catholic that things might change. And actually when he was made king, there was a great deal of excitement on this issue and there was kind of muted celebrations from the Catholics because they thought things might change. Now, as Al's already mentioned, that actually there wasn't an enormous change initially. Relationships with Spain, a, a Catholic rural country, thawed a little bit, but there wasn't a great change. And so Catholics grew restless. There was a plot called the Bi-Plot, which was looking at kidnapping him. There were attempts to influence his wife by getting her rosary beads. And all of this resulted in him, my, I would say, escalating tensions within the Catholic um, community by saying priests, all priests had to go now, not just Jesuit priests, but all priests had to leave the country. And that laid the groundwork for the gunpowder plot, which was basically some... Uh, aristocratic, very kind of uh, wealthy Catholic individuals who felt they were being increasingly persecuted, planning to kill the king and kill all the individuals in the House of Lords to remove the Protestant suppression of the Catholic community. And so just so just before we go on, so just thinking about the questions that this, this kind of begs then. So we've got the idea of, with the, that great chain of being, it, you know, it begs the question from Shakespeare's perspective, what is natural? Where does uh, God play a role in our lives? Mm-hmm. To what extent do we have free will if there's a great chain of being? What role does the supernatural play and how can that influence and subvert the great chain of being? And then looking at King James I and his views on the divine right of kings, well, why? You know, what is the role of God in relation to authority and to role power? What is the nature of what makes a good king? What is, what is it, what's the duty of a king? Who are they serving? Are they serving God? Are they serving the people? Mm-hmm. And these are questions that King James I and the society explored and struggled with, and there's certainly questions that are raised within the play as well. Absolutely. So we were saying before what we want to avoid is this bolted on context. So let's now think about the role of the great chain of being and the divine right of kings in terms of the plot. So at the start of the play, we've got Macbeth, who is Thane of Glam, soon to be promoted Thane of Cawdor. He's a valiant soldier of noble origins and people have golden opinions of him. He's celebrated as heroic on the battlefield, a loyal servant to King Duncan, who was on the throne at the time. Now, students often have some sense of confusion here that Duncan is almost presented um, as the perfect king. But I think it's important at this stage to challenge that. Mm -hmm. Duncan definitely isn't supposed to be representative of King James in the play. And I think some weaker students tend to draw that link. I think more intelligent or astute students will start to criticise potentially the way that King Duncan is presented at the start of the play in overly trusting Mm -hmm. of a character, even though the the play starts starts with a betrayal and it it begins with the beheading of a traitor Um, Duncan is so quick to then put his trust in another soldier in Macbeth he promises to plant thee he says I'll make thee full of growing I will nurture you so basically he promises Macbeth at the start of the play I will ensure that the titles fall in the right order for you I will ensure that your your career your future as a nobleman as a thane is full of growing um, and I find that really interesting because it brings into the question what you were talking before about fate and yeah. destiny. And, it, and it's the idea that potentially, you know, had he maintained this this golden opinion that everyone yeah. had him, that 
title could have come to him anyway. But the problem with Macbeth is he wants it sooner and his ambition, which is something we'll come on to talk about later in the podcast, takes over. And just on that as well, so the idea of King James is a first belief that, you know, the the kingship or the, 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 the power you have is a burden of government. Yeah. So part of your duty is to preserve the chain of being. And undoubtedly Duncan fails in, in that duty from God. Yeah. In that because of his, in fact, he's too trusting and too naive, it upsets Scotland, Scotland falls into a pew, it kind of, it's in this yeah, disaster Scotland situation. Yeah, and that's because of his failure to execute his duties. Absolutely. And they end up with the call, don't they, which is drown the weeds. So whereas at the start, Duncan promises to plant Macbeth and make him full of growing, by the end he becomes the weed that almost mm-hmm. starves Scotland of its nutrients, yeah. so stops Scotland from sort of blossoming into the country it should have been. So we've got this important theme of kingship running throughout, which obviously has those direct links with divine right. If you're not divinely chosen if you are not God's representative on earth then you are going to be made to suffer for it and we see the way that Lady Macbeth and Macbeth both suffer as a consequence of their treachery you know they uh, they have doubtful joy and restless ecstasy and they're unable to enjoy the the crown that they so desired the whole way Um, to balance that though we've got in terms of the great chain we have got the rightful heir who's Malcolm so it's important to remember that we have Duncan who's then killed and but we do have the rightful heir in place so it's only by the very end of the play that this natural order this equilibrium is so restored and the idea of a tragedy and the idea of this happening would be that it would be cathartic for audiences at the end as the natural order was restored by God um, and that's the idea so just to tie a couple of those contextual ideas into plot so as we continue with the podcast you can see where all these things sort of start to tie together so the question then becomes, why does the Thane of Glam's, soon to be the Thane of Corda, why does he suddenly get that thirst for ambition? Why isn't he happy to let fate and destiny do its job? Why does he so want to usurp his place in the great chain of being? Yeah, and one of those, one of the real, I mentioned it before, but one of the, one of the most primary influences with all the, the question which is asked by Shakespeare in terms of the influences of Macbeth is that of the supernatural um, and in particular witchcraft. Um, and I think just leading on to what you what you were saying then um, is that what this play does is it doesn't seek to answer questions; it simply poses them. So there's lots of different ways you can read it. It could so it could be seen that Macbeth is this tyrannical individual who's willing to forego all morals and disrupt that natural order as a, in terms of just simply for, to achieve his own ambition. Um, or there could be various other influences. It could be destiny, um, it could be uh, his wife, it could be the witches themselves and the supernatural. Um, but one thing to, that's important, again, is this, we're looking at context here and how context influences the play. Um, is a phrase that I'd, I'd encourage you to kind of write down and to learn is that art imitates life. And all that means is that the art of the day imitates the or, or explores the things that people were concerned about or worried about or interested in in those days. And in those days, people were definitely concerned with witches, not only um, kind of like normal people who like the people, the uneducated who maybe were more prone to superstition. But James I himself was ex- exceptionally interested in it, so much so that he, he wrote a book, um, another book, one of his three or four <laughs> books. Great scholar. He, Great he scholar. was, yeah, and uh, called Demonology, which is essentially kind of like a thesis, a dissertation on um, 
on the influences of witches, the kind of things that they that they got up to, the, what they were capable of, and it just just as he justified his role as king in the in the book that we can't pronounce that you mentioned before, Ted. He also, that's the one. <laughs> he also he kind of justified the pro, the persecution and prosecution of yeah. people ex, um, kind of suspected to be witches in this in this text because they were seen almost as an existential threat to uh, to society. Um, they were believed to be agents of the devil. They looked to cause kind of various degrees of mischief, um, and this is the, this kind of mischief making um, is really clearly shown um, in the witches of Macbeth, seen seen through well, kind of like seen at the start of the play and then revisited. Um, so when they they kind of like meddle in things such as weather, they appear to banquet Macbeth and they feed ambition and paranoia. Well placed words, well placed appearances, um, which they kept it. The events of the play um, run alongside their their appearances. So it's again, it's ambiguous as to whether they're causing events, whether they're driving events, or whether they are simply uh, coincidental. They have no real impact, and they're, they're manifestations of guilt or ambition. Yeah. Um, again, very unclear. Well, they're referred to as Banquo, aren't they? As instruments of darkness, and uh, one of the yeah. more uh, subtle comments I like that students can make is that actually they are playing Macbeth throughout the play yeah. as though he is their instrument. Yeah. And actually, Shakespeare manipulates the structure so much in the start of the play that the audience do know that um, Macbeth will be granted the new sort of promotion, as it were, to be Thane of Cawdor mm-hmm. before Macbeth finds out. Mm-hmm. So although due to the timing of the play, Macbeth feels like these prophecies have come true, as we witnessed, we know it was already going to happen. Yeah. So we've got that sort of powerful trio of the weird sisters but also that kind of undertone that they've been playing him all along and actually everything they predict was going to happen anyway because ultimately the witches are outside of the great chain of being so say that they subvert the natural order so actually they can't be in control of it that's what we should be leaving the theater Mm. thinking and what's i think interesting about the witches here as well is that you know as al said before you know we can't be certain what shakespeare's message is necessarily and this is a great piece of art in that it raises more questions than it answers and with the witches i think you definitely see that instance of did shakespeare truly believe in witches did he Mm. truly fear their their power and their influence and uh, the role of the supernatural in in, in politics and in life yeah. Yeah. like we don't know but I think what's interesting is he uses them as a vehicle as something that is one really relevant to the audience and it's King James com- himself yeah, the it's patron complete manifestation of their fears and you might think oh is this play about the, the the evil of the witches but are they actually just a way to explore the evil that we have and that society has and that the dangers of ambition etc yeah and he just. Yeah. And it's just the fact that their, their power is deliberately ambiguous. Yes. Um, and he, he, he again, he poses Shakespeare is posing the question of influence, not stating yeah. um, that like a, that there's some kind of clear and present threat put, uh, posed by these people. Um, and I think an interesting quotation is in Act Five when Macbeth, um, having realised that he was doomed, he was surrounded. Um, you know, Burnham Wood had moved, and yeah. um, and he hadn't realised at that point that Macduff was, was not born of woman, but he he was he he labels which is um or he talks about how he's tricked by these juggling fiends yeah. Yeah. and i think that's quite an interesting way of, that's an interesting description and, and it tells you something about how their power is possibly then they're seen as as people again who cause mischief mm-hmm. they they yeah. kind of influence they push people along and they cajole and they manipulate but they're certainly not these powerful beings yeah. these, eight, these demons who are able to completely um like radically change events i think the irony being that they don't they seem to, in the play, provide Macbeth with a lot of certainty and security in his role. And he thinks, mm. actually, I'm now invincible because of these prophecies or my sort of 
relationship or dalliance with the witchcraft yeah. has caused me to go on and follow my pursuit to be king. Yeah. But actually, we as an audience are almost screaming at the stage, stop trusting him. You know, mm-hmm. what are you doing putting your beliefs in this? Remember, he did start the play as a noble man. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of summarised by Hecate, who says security is mortal's chiefest enemy. That being overconfidence will lead to a downfall. And I just find it really interesting that Shakespeare chooses not the strong female protagonist, not even the strong male protagonist to be the the giver of this security, Mm. but it's the witches. And I think it's all about us as an audience being encouraged to question, should those witches, those elements of the supernatural, have caused a noble man to feel so overconfident? Mm. That's interesting. But there's also the influence that they have on, uh, well, Lady Mabette's influence and whether she can mm. be, we're going to do, we're going to do more on, on her, her role in the play uh, in a later episode. Um, but the fact that she, she calls on that, and this is the supernatural in, in general, calls on um, spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, mm-hmm. um, murdering ministers. Yeah. Falls into her own couplets, similar to the witches. Yeah, yeah. And, and kind of like, it's almost like, yeah, again, it's this kind of almost a prayer, a call yeah. for, for her to kind of steal herself for the act of the murder. Yeah. Um, and again, that question is posed is it could she would she have done it without this kind of was this simply for dramatic effect yeah that she was like well this is me I'm actually Shakespeare's presenting to the audience that this is a woman who's exceptionally driven ambitious and ruthless or is he is he saying that um, Lady Macbeth recognises that she's ambitious and yet she needs some kind of supernatural intervention in order to get through with this with this plan to kill the king yeah Absolutely, but, but yeah, I just think that the, the witches and the role of the supernatural in the play is so, like you said, ambiguous and so unclear, and, and that's what this play does so well, and that it raises yeah. those questions. And it, and again, it plays well, like I said, art imitates life. That's this is what people were afraid of. They, mm. That's what they thought might be happening. Yeah. Um, and and it's this, you see similar things today in terms of I always think about conspiracy theories. Yeah. People look for a grand narrative. They look for a simple explanations to why bad things happen in the world mm-hmm. um, so it could be you know it could be because of some kind of small group of powerful people who are yeah. running the world and, and, and uh, that's the kind of like a modern day conspiracy yeah. if, you, if you take that back 400, 500 years um, it's easy to see how they might look at things like agents of the devil yeah. are the ones to blame for natural disasters and yeah. famine and poverty and all the things all the, the corruption kind of, like, of yeah, man yeah the pain of their lives they, they need, you want an explanation for that it's almost like a human uh, it's part of the human condition it's a psychological and the, it, it, it links back to the you know at the moment we have a great faith in progress and science is kind of being able to fix all of our our ills and our problems and that's why sometimes people fall in conspiracy theories I think to why isn't this happening well it's because people are ruining it otherwise we'd be fine and back then they had a great faith in the, in in God the power of God the divinity of God yeah. and the great chain of being and yet society was was still having issues mm-hmm. so it was very convenient to think that that's the the influence of the devil upsetting the great chain of being and that if it wasn't for that influence life would be better and it's kind of yeah, that's the an interesting role of the supernatural upsetting. If it wasn't for the devil, that, that these problems wouldn't be there. Absolutely. We can look at the Weird Sisters, so the, the three witches, um, also as sort of conforming to elements of Gothic literature. Now, obviously, Macbeth predates the sort of height of Gothic literature by 200 years, so we're not saying that this falls into the Gothic uh, literature yeah. the goth- yeah we're not saying this falls into the gothic canon but what we are saying is that there are certainly elements of the play which we can see as being gothic so the inclusion of this mystical trio of witches who have the power to corrupt the anti-hero of the play we also have a femme fatale type figure and gothic settings from castles to ruins and so on um, and underpinning this is that idea of how women are presented in the play so 
we've got with the witches, Banquo says when he sees the witches, you ought to be women, but your beards forbid me to interpret you are so. Great quote. Exactly. So I think, you know, he describes them as withered and wild and basically says you should be women, but the way you look so manly and so horrifying, I cannot say you are women. Yeah. Um, and I think the portrayal of women in the play is something we should probably discuss um, in this introductory contextual podcast. Um, students so often will, will throw out the same bolted on context as in Lady Macbeth shouldn't have been so powerful, she should have had a baby, should have been in the kitchen, mm. women didn't have any power because it was a patriarchal society. Yeah. And although, of course, patriarchal society will warrant a tip from an examiner, that's about the only good thing that's said yeah. in the context of that. Um, it's really important to avoid, uh, for, for students, to avoid that bolted on generic context about how women should have behaved. Yeah. Um, that being said, though, it's important to look at how Lady Macbeth as a character and the witches both sort of invert or subvert the patriarchal norms of the day. And I think that's a much nicer way to put it, that they are there as characters to challenge the patriarchal norms of the day. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think that's like a simple... The simplest kind of contextual point that... I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's so relevant, is that for the Jacobean audience to see Lady Macbeth mm-hmm. to see that character speak and behave in that way would be absolutely mind-blowing like nothing they have seen before yeah. like just so challenging so kind of contrary to the, the beliefs and the kind of the, the values that they had at that time it would be almost impossible for us to imagine an equivalent yeah absolutely and think what I want to sort of argue here is that if we can link all aspects of context, so these bolt-on comments about witchcraft or these bolt-on comments about women, if we can link them all back to what Alex started the podcast talking about, which is this political unrest, this mm-hmm. state of uncertainty in society where actually it, nothing would suit the king better than to ensure that everyone in society sort of stays in their lane, stays in the position that they've been granted, adheres to the natural order of things set out by the great chain of being and doesn't question his role. That is ultimately what someone at the top of a hierarchy wants, for everybody else at the bottom of the hierarchy to accept their place. So we can see in Lady Macbeth, she's trying to challenge those norms. And I think actually if we can link that to the gunpowder plot, a time where there were people trying to challenge the norms of society, to question, to try and usurp their place in the natural order of things, or to disrupt that natural order, we can see that itself is is scary for an audience. But you know, I think for for any yeah, anyone who's aiming for a grade nine here, I think it's something that you w- would really behoove your studies is if you looked at kind of gender theories, looked at ideas of kind of like uh, gender performativity, so yep. the idea that gender is something you learn and it's a behaviour you perform, or you can look at kind of gender biological determinism, the idea yep. that this is just like you're an animal and you behave in certain ways because you're kind of programmed by evolution to do that. And I think what's interesting, and if you want to avoid kind of just saying, giving an obvious point about context, then I think there's room in there to ask, to when you look at context, to ask the questions of what Shakespeare's view here. Yeah. And we see that with Lady Macbeth. On one hand, she seems to challenge kind of the idea of how women should behave. But then the other hand, she says um, you know, she isn't able to kill her father, yeah. Duncan, who looks like her father. She ends up suffering guilt and can't deal with the consequences of her actions. Absolutely. She is uh, manipulative and cunning, so she is strong, but in a way that's not kind of particularly obvious or masculine. So it's Shakespeare simultaneously being very gender subversive, but mm-hmm. also playing by the rules of the game at the time. Absolutely, and I think and it's so important. So look, Alex talked before about how she commands the spirits. Yeah. She, she asks at the start, doesn't she, Lady Macbeth? She asks the spirits to stop up the access and passage to remorse, mm-hmm. yet she ends up sleepwalking and hallucinating and almost regurgitating all of her yeah. violent acts throughout the play. 
in this sort of bid, this desperate bid to reclaim herself before the ultimate judgment almost. So she definitely didn't have that passage from us stopped yeah. up. You know, all of that soliloquy where she called on the mortal spirits from sexo, that didn't work. So actually, have we got a more subtle warning from Shakespeare, which is don't try and challenge your place in society. Mm-hmm. We've got to think maybe James as well as a king. So James the first could have been threatened by a powerful woman. Mm-hmm. So actually, Shakespeare ensuring that Lady Macbeth is not allowed to overpower her husband and suffers as a consequence of a that message for is that pertinent warning there to society to say, you know, if you're a woman, this is your place in society. And I just think there's that there's that nuance there, though, of not saying your place in society is to have children, to stay in the kitchen, not to challenge your husband. It's talking about that in a sense of the natural order yeah. of things and the way things should be. Yeah. And I, I think the, the fact, that's just the fact that, that Shakespeare kind of conflates Lady Macbeth's ambition and her ruthlessness with the supernatural. Yeah. yeah. Is to say to, to abandon her femininity is to be a witch or yeah. is to yeah. be something evil. Um, so I, I think it's definitely worth having that understanding as you were saying of kind of like uh, gender theory and things like that but I wouldn't read this text as Shakespeare as some kind of no, like no. proto-feminist who's, yeah. who's Lady Macbeth feminist before what, her time well, yeah. it's not in, the, in terms of I, I think what you would you, you see end up happening is that Lady Macbeth ultimately she she would say that she, the reason why she falls apart is because she's too feminine and that she yeah. she had this feminine side that she couldn't ignore and she couldn't escape her nature she couldn't mm. escape the great chain of being but I think like because gender crops up so often I think it's important to yeah, to no, look at yeah, look yeah, at these yeah. kind of different ideas and theories and approaches I do as well I just, I just think it it was just a kind of warning against that kind of like reading it as a kind of social yeah no, no yeah. but again I think with context it's important to ask the question of what is Shakespeare saying here and why is he saying it so why does he show yeah. Lady Macbeth ultimately dying what's that supposed to be showing us about the role of women yeah. and that's the thing if you want to avoid bolt on context don't just say Shakespeare does this too but you know offer different interpretations ask the question why that's the most important thing in English why does Shakespeare do this what's what's his point here what interpretations can you offer absolutely so again coming back to that idea of uh, that warning to society at mm-hmm. the time the relevance of the gunpowder plot so this po- this play so this play was written in the wake of the gunpowder mm-hmm. plot the immediate aftermath of the gunpowder plot and was written for the patron, King James, who was the intended target of the assassination attempt. So I think the first thing is, it's really, really important to never underestimate the influence that major political events have on, on all art that follows. So certainly as we were growing up, the, the kind of the great influence was uh, kind of the tragedy of 9-11. And that shaped so much of kind of the, the culture and the art and the music of, yeah. of, of Western society. But it absolutely shapes and it creates, it creates an atmosphere and it creates a kind of a feeling and it, it's this great elephant in the room in every situation. So, you know, when you look at kind of the influence of 9-11, if you look at kind of music and films from the 90s, so for instance, as a nerd, as I mentioned before, you look at the Batman from the 90s, it's kind of very cartoonish. You've got George Clooney, Val Kilmer, and you look at like the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Batman Begins, and there's the threats of terror, there's the idea of fear, there's the idea of society kind of crumbling. They're much more cynical. And that one event fundamentally changed the way um, art was kind of created. So with the gunpowder plot, I think it's really important to aware this is a time of great fear. It's a time of great unrest. What actually happened in the wake of the gunpowder plot was that support for the king increased massively in that the kind of, as often happens in the event of kind of instance deemed terror, the kind of country tends to come together, tends to kind of toe the same line. 
but there's that element of fear that it, cha- it like these events challenge the the orthodox and the, the norm of the time because they show the vulnerability of the state. So the audience, as they're watching this, are aware that the king was nearly killed, that the king's mortality was kind of brought into question. You know, in one moment, you would have had the House of Lords representing kind of the the church, representing all the leaders uh, financially and in terms of the aristocracy. In one building, they would have been wiped out along with the king. So the entire leadership of the nation would have been gone in one fell swoop. Now, for everyone in England, that is an enormously challenging idea, and that's a really shocking idea. So this play looks at what happens when you remove, um, when you challenge the great chain of being, what happens when you remove um, the figureheads appointed by God, and, you know, what would happen. And obviously, when we see the case of Scotland, it's anarchy, it's terrible, yeah. kind of the, it's, and we see the influence of the supernatural in that. So I think... The influence of the gunpowder plot in this, the audience is aware of the, the fragility of the state yeah. and the kind of the, the turmoil at the time. And it's just a question of what would happen. This is almost, I don't want to say it's similar to a post-apocalyptic scenario, but for them it is. Well, what happens if the king, if that kind of connection with the god is removed? Yeah. What, what are these influences that are challenging the king? What happens if the authority of god is challenged? And this play explores those issues and explores kind of the, the negative potential consequences of the gunpowder plot and the great unspoken fear that... The king is mortal and could be taken away from us. Absolutely. And so would anger God. And from that comes that key theme of betrayal, doesn't it? Yeah. So that's why not only do we have like direct references to the gunpowder plot in sort of terms such as the assassination, um, which Macbeth refers to the deeds and so on. So we have this very conscious act of regicide to kill the king, which would send alarm bells throughout that Jacobean audience in the wake of the gunpowder plot. And just but also on got... that, it was, pe- it was people who were members of the aristocracy as well, people who were like trusted, uh, respectable members who were planning this assassination yeah. in the same way that Macbeth was a trusted absolutely. servant yeah. of the, the king. And absolutely, and we've not just got the, the more explicit sense of the betrayal and the regicide, we've also got the undertone of betrayal throughout the whole place, so... Macbeth, for example, betraying his wife, Macbeth betraying his best friend Banquo, Macbeth betraying himself and the man he was to begin with. Um, And there's a really nice little reference to the gunpowder plot when Lady Macbeth says to Macbeth, look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. Mm -hmm. And that is reference to a medal, which was uh, sort of made on behalf of King James. And it was inscripted with a flower with a snake figure coming from beneath the flower. And that was supposed to be um, a medal to symbolise the fact that that plan had been thwarted, yeah. you know, that the gunpowder plot had been uncovered before the tragic consequence. And I think that reference there, it's designed like everyone in the audience would have known about that medal, mm-hmm. would have known about that, that Jesuit that sort image. of symbol, and they would have then known that that is, you know, we can't see the play without that understanding of the gunpowder plot, really. Mm-hmm. That brings us on then, doesn't it, to the idea of why it's important to maintain natural order. We've spoken about it throughout, but this idea of a society which maintains that hierarchy. Um, And then we have a character like Macbeth. So we have the usurper that is Macbeth, spurred on, and we'll come on to discuss this in future episodes, spurred on potentially by his own um, tragic flaw spurred on by his wife's manipulation, spurred on by the supernatural. We'll debate that in time to come. Um, But we've got um, another contextual point we just want to make is about um, Machiavellian usurping. So Machiavelli was a thinker from the Italian Renaissance period and basically sort of argued that it is okay to get to the top no matter if the ways are unscrupulous 
or if you gain by immoral ways. Mm. Now, this has now sort of become part of leadership theory in that to be a Machiavellian usurper is to do anything to get to the top. So we can certainly start to argue that Macbeth uh, is a Machiavellian usurper. His wife is almost Machiavellian in character too. Uh, yeah, you, you, I think that you need to be careful here with Machiavelli because it's kind of you're, it's seen as a kind of negative trait. Mm. You know, someone who's ruthless, cutthroat, and will do anything to get to the, to the top. But really, it can be seen as questioning though, challenging. As yeah, well. I, th- I think Machiavelli's work was much Practical. more um, advisory to somebody like Duncan or somebody like um, Macbeth, or to, and Malcolm yeah. would be seen as, as the ideal in terms that his his whole theory was based on. Yes, not necessarily usurping, but more on maintenance. So when you are king, when you are the prince, the, the, the head of state, um, you need to be prepared to, to dabble in the dark arts. Mm-hmm. You, know, you need to be yeah. ruthless, you need to be violent, you need to make an example of people who, who, might, um, who might look to uh, depose you or even even. But then even that. also on that, be practical not to go too far. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and balance that out. And, and the, point, the point that, if you're going to bring Machiavelli in here, is that he, his theory wasn't about the individual it wasn't about you 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 can do this because it's because it'll it'll be good for your career it'll be good for your ambition it was about glorifying and maintaining order in the state so any any leader who puts their own ambition above or their own values above those of the state or the importance of the state has failed in that machiavellian ideal and you can you can accuse Macbeth of that definitely because of his kind of kind of like paranoia and his impulsive violence um but equally you can you can level that accusation at duncan simply because he was so trusting and such he allowed his kind of Christian values um, to dictate the way that he would rule. Um, and his and, naivety is criticised. Yeah, and, and that, yeah. that in itself is kind of like an unforgivable almost um, naivety or arrogance to say that, you know, that you... It's, it's kind of like, it, it's almost as if Duncan was guilty of relying on that divine right of kings. He's appointed by God, therefore he's protected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When actually, and Macbeth was very much on the other side of that spectrum, he disrupted that um, that order and therefore had to be ruthless and had to be murderous in order to, to maintain it. When really what Macbeth, what you could say Shakespeare is trying to get across with this play is that you need to strike a balance between the two. Yeah. You need, you, you yes, to, to, to James the First, he may say you are you, you are, have a right uh, to being a king. Yeah, you have the right duties, but you have duties, and you have to defend that right, yeah. and it's not going to defend itself. And that, I mean, that's you know, pretty, I mean, like King James I would have absolutely loved that message. And it's interesting that for Machiavelli, he was influenced massively by the kind of the, the like interesting conflicts in Italy mm-hmm. and the kind of constant collapse of like you know, state governments yeah. and falling down, which is exactly what we see happen in Scotland mm-hmm. when Duncan is irresponsible as a leader and puts it in the situation. And it's almost like that, that Machiavelli probably would have been very disparaging of the idea of the great chain of being because there's this idea that divinity's behind it mm. but as a conservative thinker in, in ways he would have been a big believer in kind of preserving the status quo and just making sure things stay as they are because stability is far yeah. preferable to war yes. famine yeah. and ruin Absolutely. so the status quo is and always preferable and that's, what, that's the kind of the bedrock of what political realism yeah. is especially like in, ge- in geopolitics especially um, you know assume that everybody is out to get you yeah. and be prepared to, to act decisively and violently in order to, to prevent that. And then we see that brilliantly with Malcolm when Macduff comes down and Malcolm doesn't trust him and he tricks yeah. him and he, and he, he kind of and he tests his character yeah. and then as soon as he finds out Macduff's family's dead straight away starts manipulating him and says well you know do it like a man yeah. deal with this grief yeah. like a man and that's that's the kind of Machiavellian ideal he's kind of achieving what but he needs to be leader not selfish game yeah yeah very nice that leads us on to our final point then for today um, we're just going to look at Aristotle and his thinking about the tragic hero. 
So Aristotle was an ancient Greek philosopher and scientist, often referred to as the father of Western philosophy. Um, and the aspect of Aristotle that is relevant here is his poetics, the study of Greek dramatic art. So basically he looked at the genre of the tragedy and he thought that there were six sort of conventions of a typical uh, Aristotelian tragedy. Um, one of them being this, this central character, a protagonist who is a tragic hero. Now, basically what I mean by a tragic hero is a character who starts a man of noble heritage, a man of whom people, as literally said by Macbeth, people have golden opinions of him. A good guy, but without fault. And that fault has to be intrinsic, has to be an inherent character flaw. Um, we see in Hamlet, the flaw is one of hubris. Mm -hmm. And we see here, um, the flaw, I mean, it's debatable, and we are going to do an episode debating what Macbeth's tragic flaw is. Um, but Aristotle basically says that for it to be a typical tragedy, the tragic hero, the protagonist, will suffer from a homage or a fatal flaw, and that, we could say, is his ambition. Mm -hmm. But basically, this flaw must lead to an his, overall his demise yeah. and his doom. So we see Macbeth go from valiant... Um, is, Worthy. Is, is that fall from grace like Lucifer himself? Fall from himself? grace, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, angels are bright, they're the brightest yeah. well. And that is mirrored in the falling of Macbeth to being, at the very last scene, the dead butcher with mm. his fiend-like queen. So with that in mind, we've obviously discussed the elements of historical context which influenced the play from the gunpowder plot, the perception of witchcraft, the great chain of being, the divine right of kings. We've looked at how religion and the idea of kingship can influence the play. And although this podcast is the first in a series we we don't we don't want it to serve as a standalone mm -hmm. part of your revision um, it's really important like we said from the start we kept coming back to this idea of trying to avoid bolted on context so you may use parts of what you've learned today in the podcast in your essays and you may not but what is important is that without a proper understanding of the context we can't begin to understand the characters mm. or the certainly themes. not that high level yeah absolutely so if we're aiming for top grades, what we want to do is revisit the play and revisit quotes with this in mind, not to add our bolt-on comments about the patriarchal society or about witches at the time. Or Machiavelli or whatever it might no, be. No, yeah. exactly. You know, there is no high-level contextual idea. It's the way we can apply it to our critical understanding of a character yeah. or of Shakespeare's intention overall, and that is what's going to get us those best grades. And I often think when you're studying a play and you learn more about the context, you learn more about the ideas that may or may not have influenced it, you know it has an impact when you're able to ask yourself more questions and more interpretations yeah so as you go through the play can you consider well actually is it what's this saying to me about the kind of the idea of ambition is yeah. this kind of agreeing with uh, the great chain of being or is it more in line with Machiavelli's thinking and that's a, that's the thing you need to use this contextual understanding to help you ask more questions about Shakespeare's intentions about the characters and that's your AO1 absolutely so that's about it from us today Join us on the next episode where we will be discussing to what extent is Macbeth the quintessential tragic hero but for now, it's goodbye from me, Em. And it's goodbye from me, Ted. And it's goodbye from me, Alex. Bye, English nerds. Bye.